Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Morning. Morning. Um, we are uh, obviously continuing through our, our study through the, the Gospel of Mark, and uh, this morning, this morning's text, I think, is for me, and I think for those for those of you who um, who've been challenged uh, in in how to to walk like and live for Jesus, I think um, is. Is a is kind of a, a good challenging moment uh, that that will confront us, um, and so as we as we get into the text and as we walk through this morning, my, my prayer and my my request of you is that as you listen, uh, listening with open hearts and minds, and looking to find yourself, maybe not where you want to be in the text, but more so where God is identifying you and wanting you to take next steps and grow, because I think that's super important. Um, <clears throat> this morning, uh, we, we start off in uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 27, and we'll get to that in just a second. But um, what's interesting is, is there's this uh, challenge that the religious leaders set before Jesus about his authority, um, and where does that come from? It's interesting because uh, we as human beings have a, an odd and difficult relationship with authority. Um, a guy named Max Weber actually came out with uh, probably one of the more definitive kind of categori- categorizations about authority, and he, he comes up with three types of authority. One type is traditional authority, which is that kind of comes from longstanding custom. It's those things that kind of go way back, and maybe we don't even remember why that's how we see authority, but, but it is. It's like in a patriarchal society. It's the patriarch is the authority, and that's a tra- that, would be, that, I, that comes from a, the tradition in, in, in that culture. Um, second type of authority he talks about is legal rational, which actually is from an office or a title. It's not necessarily anchored in the person. So, so that kind of authority means that you get a title or you have an office that, that comes with it, authority. It doesn't necessarily, it, it means you might be a great leader with authority. You might be a terrible leader with authority, but it comes with the office. Uh, and, and, and then the third type of leadership that, that Weber talks about is he calls it charismatic leadership or charismatic authority, which actually focus, focuses more on the qualities of that person rather than the title or office or tradition. Um, the interest, interesting thing about charismatic authority is it can be really good, it can be really, really bad. Um, in fact, two examples that, that Weber uses to uh, illustrate charismatic authority, as he says, on the bad side, Hitler was a charismatic, had charismatic authority as he rose, um, and then also Jesus had charismatic authority because of the force of his character, his, who he was. Um, and, and so, and again, he doesn't necessarily have that nailed down right, but that's the examples he uses in those. And it's interesting because today, <clears throat> we tend to decide for ourselves who or what authority we want to recognize. Um, and it's more centered on me rather than uh, what is actually out there. It's interesting because when, when it comes to the government, we can recognize the government's authority as long as it con- conforms to my ideals. Um, we tend to look at authority in the church as long as what's taught is the same thing that I feel strongly about. Um, oftentimes when it comes to experts, um, I mean, like, who wants to hear more about experts? But, um, but uh, the experts, um, yeah, we see them as authoritative as long as their expertise follows my experience. Uh, parents, as children, we see parents' authority um, as long as they respect our rights and our uh, our opportunities to uh, in explore and investigate things. Um, law enforcement. We respect law enforcement authority as long as we believe that they're there to protect us and, and be helpful for us. Uh, we tend to think that maybe, you know, we, we talk about our culture and our society and kind of the degradation of respect or, or uh, authority and those kinds of things. Um, we tend to think that that's new or newish. 
but, but really, it's, it's not. It's actually been around since the very beginning. Humanity has questioned and rejected authority that doesn't fit them. And we really only have to read like up to chapter 3 in Genesis. Within the third chapter of the Bible, we see that Adam and Eve came to a conclusion that the authority that they were under of God wasn't to their best interest or their liking, and so they chose a different route. Um, because again, it's centered on us. So typically as we look at authority, it has to do with what, how it affects us and what it allows us to do. And authority that we appreciate tends to keep us in a position of privilege or power. And, and we see this in the lives of the religious leaders as they question Jesus in Mark. So uh, Mark chapter 11, <clears throat> kind of the setting for what we have uh, is, that, is that Jesus is now in the temple. Um, he's in actually the court of the Gentiles specifically. And this, this happens the next day, the day after uh, the, the passage that Kyle preached on last week about Jesus clearing the, te the temple. The court of the Gentiles from the money changers and the, all the transactions and all of those things happening there. And where we are in kind of the story of the life of Jesus is that there's this widening alienation between Jesus and those who control the temple and who control the religious life of Israel. And so now we have kind of those people gathered together by the temple where Jesus is teaching and speaking. And so in verse 27, we, we, we catch up with the story that Mark tells, and, and it says, And they came, Jesus and his disciples came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? So it says that Jesus and his disciples uh, were in the temple, um, and, and, uh, and, and they get approached by, it says, the, the chief priests, it says, the scribes and the elders, kind of all of the, the power core of religious life, because, or actually Jewish life, because Jewish life was centered on their religion. And, and so <clears throat> here, here come the religious leaders, and they ask a question. But, but the way they ask the question and, 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 the, and the context that they're in is really there's, there's, it's a hostile approach. It's kind of a hostile approach to Jesus, unlike how we all ask questions today where we're open-minded and we're just really learners and we just are asking because we want information and we want to learn. We, I mean, I'm here to learn, right? That's everybody's motto in our country. I'm here to learn. And so we're just always, you know, we're always open-minded and kind of like, hey, you just want to understand first and then maybe attack, but, you know, so anyway, so, but the, the religious leaders, they're there for the fight, and, and so they come to Jesus, and they say, um, by what authority do you do these things? These things are pretty particular, because we go back uh, a couple chapters, and we see Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. He's been heading toward Jerusalem his whole life, and now we're finally in Jerusalem, and he's going to be here for a little bit until the crucifixion. And, and so, over the last couple days, this is what's happened. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem in, in a fairly significant way, and then yesterday, he was in the temple, and he, and he threw tables over. And so, when the, the religious leaders say, by what authority do you do these things, he's actually saying, they're actually asking this question, how is it, by what authority do you enter Jerusalem in a kingly manner on the back of a colt, with people saying Hosanna, with people laying their coats and palm branches down in front of you, by what authority do you enter in by that manner into Jerusalem? And maybe even more importantly, by what authority do you do these things that you did yesterday? You come into the temple and you throw tables, you threaten people, and you decide that you are the authoritative voice on what happens in, in our temple. So by what authority do you do this? So in other words, really what, what they were saying was, um, who do you think you are and where do you get off doing what you've done? That's kind of where the Pharisees are in this moment, or the, 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 the religious leaders are in that moment. So in verse 29, Jesus, Jesus said to them, 
I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So it's interesting. The, the, the religious leaders ask a question, and um, again, to, to give you a little bit more of a, of a visual of what's going on here is, is Jesus is in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is kind of where Jesus sets anchor in his ministry in Jerusalem. He's kind of there. And so it's not necessarily like when, when, when we look at this and we think that, you know, people are kind of just passing by and, and then the, the, the religious leaders come and talk, almost in what we see of like a street preacher who's on a corner on the sidewalk and people are walking to and fro, maybe a couple people have gathered. But for the most part, all you hear from that person is what you're in earshot as you're passing by to go to lunch or go back to work or whatever that looks like. But that wasn't the case because Jesus kind of made the court of the Gentiles his place of teaching in Jerusalem when he was there. And so there's actually a crowd in the court of Gentiles listening to what Jesus has to say. And that's where the religious leaders knew they would find Jesus to have an audience with him and have a crowd that they could stir up trouble for Jesus. And so, and, and so here Jesus responds to their question and uh, it almost seems like Jesus is like dodgy in this moment as we, as we think about the, the way we would answer or not answer questions. Because Jesus says, hey, well, I'm going to ask a question, and then you can answer me. And if you answer me, then I'll tell you the answer to your question. Uh, and so it's kind of, but, but what's interesting is the, fair, the, the religious leaders don't actually get angry or call Jesus out on, on like, trying to, to, to kind of derail what's going on. I mean, you know, typically when we do things like this, we don't know the answer to the question or we don't like the question. Uh, and so we try to like stall. We are we're like, hey, a bird. And so, you know, something like that. So, you know, we do something like that. But that's really not what Jesus was doing because Jesus was actually, he was kind of jumping into the same context as the religious leaders, what they were familiar with. Because this kind of debate was actually a recognized move in Hellenistic and rabbinic conversations and debate. So they were super familiar with this, and it was just kind of how the conversation actually goes. It was a cultural thing that they were used to. So Jesus isn't actually dodging anything. He's just playing by their rules, which is interesting. And so in Jesus' question, when he says, well, you know what? I'll tell you what, I'm going to ask you a question. You answer me, and then I'll answer you. And the question Jesus asks is, he says, so tell me, where was John's baptism from? In other words, where did, the, where did John get his authority to baptize people the way he did in his ministry up to the point where he got arrested by Herod and then beheaded? And so in Jesus' question, here's what he's doing. This is super, this is critical to catch. Jesus was connecting the dots between the ultimate answer that Jesus would give to the, to the religious leaders about where his authority comes from, and he was connecting that to where John had his authority, and he was going to let the, the, the religious leaders go first. Because if you, if you back up and look, what, look, look at what John said about Jesus in his earthly ministry, he was saying he's a voice calling out, preparing the way for someone greater. And then later in his ministry, he identifies Jesus as that greater person. So, whatever you say about John is multiplied for Jesus. That's, that's kind of the rub here that Jesus sets up. And so again, by John's own teaching, Jesus is greater. So, we jump back into verse 31. And it says, and they discussed it with one another. So here's, here's the religious leaders. They kind of gather together. They discuss it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So here's, here's, what's, here's, what's, here's what's great about this. 
is, is whatever, the, whatever these religious leaders respond with has to be linked to the question of where Jesus' authority comes from. So, so I imagine the religious leaders there, I imagine them kind of step, taking a step back and having a little holy huddle and, and, and saying, okay, so um, if, if, we, if we say uh, John's baptism was from heaven, then that means Jesus will come at us and say, well, you didn't even believe that, and, and so what does that say about me? So we, we clearly can't say that it was from heaven. And then if we say uh, it wasn't from heaven, then uh, what will happen is then the people will get upset because they see John as a prophet and they'll get really mad at us. So we clearly cannot choose that John's baptism wasn't from heaven. See, the religious leaders made one of the greatest mistakes in history, second only to starting a land war in China. It's to go into a debate with the Messiah when death is on the line. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so here's their conversation. And, 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 and so they, here's the thing about the religious leaders. They may have been prideful, arrogant, power defensive. Anytime their power authority was questioned, they were on the defense. But they were not stupid. They knew what was going on. So they connected the dots, and they began to fear the loss of their own diminishing authority because they recognized that they needed the people to believe in them in order to have authority. They weren't just anchored in their authority from God as individuals chosen to lead they were anchored in people's opinions and their, their preferences. And, and I think that's something that gives us pause for just a second because, see, our convictions, the way we live our lives, must be anchored in God alone and independent from any culture, any nation, any tribe, any family, or any person Otherwise, we are just like those religious leaders, always on the verge of losing everything because people and their inventions can't actually be trusted. They're temporal. They're not eternal. They're fragile. They're not strong. And so we need to be careful as we live our lives and we, we go about doing the things we claim that we believe that God wants us to do, those things cannot be contact, connected to the to the happiness or the pleasure of those around us. No matter how, what kind of culture or tribe or family we've grown up in, we have to recognize that anchor in God alone. And so what happens in this confrontation with Jesus is there will be no answers today. <laughs> uh, so they say, well, we, we're in a place, so we're not answering. And, and, and while there weren't any answers given to the questions that both Jesus and the religious leaders asked, there actually were answers that were found in those moments. Imagine yourself in the crowd listening to this, this debate, and it ends with the religious leaders, the ones who are all high and mighty and in charge, saying, we don't know where John's baptism came from, and we are the authority on everything baptism me. So they say, we don't know. So if you were in the crowd, what would you be thinking? I think Jesus did something that makes me believe that they're in trouble. And they don't want to admit anything about this place of authority because it seems like it's kind of a big threat to them because they weren't super keen on John, but... I'm pretty sure John was a prophet because of what I saw and experienced. And if they're not willing to talk about that, it sounds like they're, I think there's a cover-up. Like they're hiding something. And, and, and so, I mean, I, mean I, I would guess that those in the crowd who were listening and astute probably got their answers that day. Like, yeah, I think Jesus, I, it sounds like Jesus, he's big time. And, and it seems like he's threatening the, the religious leaders by his mere presence. And, and, so, and so immediately following this conversation or lack thereof, 
Jesus launches into a parable before anybody can, can kind of escape or, or move on to something else. He, he immediately jumps into this. And what's, what's cool about this is that when Jesus, when Jesus speaks in parables, it's, it's this thing where some people get it, and if they get it, they get it right away, and they get it really heavy. If they don't get it, they're not going to get it. <laughs> And so here's one of those moments where Jesus tells a parable and there is immediate, immediate consequence to it. Let me, let me, uh, let me read, let me read the, the, the parable first and then we'll talk about it. So in, in, verse, in chapter 12, it says, And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower. And then he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed, and he and had... He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus tells us, he says this parable, and, 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 and to kind of just back up a little bit to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying here, because we don't have all the contextual cues that, that, that they had at that moment. The, the vineyard, oftentimes in the, in the Old Testament, God describes Israel as a vineyard, and, and it really sees when, in the Old Testament, when God talks about that, oftentimes it is this long saga of God's dealing with His chosen people. And in fact, in Isaiah 5, verses 1 and 2, there's almost an identical start to a story about the vineyard. It's an allegory, and it's explicitly drawn out in Isaiah of God's disappointment with His people and his judgment on the vineyard or the nation of Israel. Now here, the vineyard is the setting, and the tenants, though, or whoever the tenants are, they're the ones who are in view because the owner is wanting to save the vineyard. And, and so Jesus' parable has hope for a new beginning, but that comes after judgment of the existing regime. And so here's, here's the characters in the, in the parable and who they are, really. The vineyard owner, that's God. The tenants are the religious leaders that Jesus is speaking to. The servants are the prophets that God has sent one after another to Israel, to the people of Israel, to the leaders of Israel. And the owner's son is Jesus Christ, played by himself in the story. Um, now, I get really into parables, and this week, I was like, okay, who could I be in the story? I was like, oh, and then this week, so I, um, I, was, I, was, I took a trip this week, and I was actually exploring a, a lava cave, a lava tube, um, and the, the height in those goes up and down, and I thought it was higher than, than it was, and I hit my head, and um, like when you get a head wound, it just bleeds everywhere, and I was like, I'm like the servant who is struck in the head. So I did that mainly for the story. So I'm willing to sacrifice life and limb just to illustrate the story. So um, I'll be that guy. Uh, <laughs> so here's, here's, what, here's what's happening in this, in this parable that Jesus tells. You've got the flow where, where an owner plants a vineyard, he leases it to tenants, and then later he goes to collect some of the, the fruit from that vineyard. Now, what's going on here in Leviticus 19, the Old Testament gives some rules about owning property in land. And so to retain legal rights as an owner of a piece of land, a productive piece of land, you could lease it out to tenants who would work that field, 
But, but what you would have to do is you would have to obtain produce from those tenants in a certain amount of time. And so there was an agreed-upon proportion from the crop to be surrendered to the owner when the tenants came in at first. So there's kind of this contractual agreement that when this harvest comes in, we'll give the owner this much of it. And that's basically our lease agreement. And, and so what's interesting, though, about the way God called the Israelites to, to, to farm land is that the first few years, they weren't to actually take from the harvest. The fourth year, that harvest went to God. It was an offering to God. They didn't get the harvest the fourth year. The fifth year, that was for them to enjoy and celebrate and used to its fullest. And, and, so, and so what we're, what we're, seeing, what we're seeing here is, is, is that um, the owner then, by the fifth year, needed to receive a, a proportion of whatever that yield is in order to retain ownership of that piece of land. So this is an ownership issue. And so... I'm guessing probably we're coming on the fifth year of these tenants working this land for this owner who went, says, to a far country. And so we're coming to the fifth year, and the owner sends different employees, servants of his household to go and collect what the tenants and he agreed upon when the harvest comes in. So he sends a servant, and they beat the servant, send them back empty-handed. Then I go and I get struck on the head, and I get sent back. And then he sends another servant, glad I wasn't that one, who gets killed. And then so on and so forth. He just keeps sending servants over this period of time to collect part of the harvest, and they keep beating, killing, all of these things, and, and, and that's what keeps happening. Which, when you look at this strictly from a business human sense, this owner is not super bright. Like he keeps sending servant after servant and the same thing happens. Like what's going to change with the next one? Obviously, these tenants have some issues with what they owe the owner. But when you think of it in the context of being a parable and, and when you think about who the players are that Jesus is talking about, it becomes a very different story because instead of the owner being somewhat foolish, this actually shows the incredible mercy and grace that the owner has toward the tenants and toward all those in the vineyard. Because this is God sending prophet after prophet after prophet being rejected and mistreated to his people and those who are leading his people. And he does it over and over, not because he's foolish, but because God perseveres in his love for humankind. And, and, and so, and so we, we see this happening. And, and so, so, so it seems as though after maybe four years, the tenants are pretty securely entrenched in their grip of the field, and they refuse the claim of ownership and the agreement that they made. And so, so really, the owner in the story, sending person after person, is, is actually an issue of ownership. Because you see, if the owner doesn't get the part of the crop that he was, he was, uh, that was agreed upon, he loses the property, and it goes to those who are currently working it. That was part of what the Old Testament taught. So everyone listening to that would, would know in the story that that's why he's so intent on getting this, this, this harvest, because he could lose his property. And so then finally, the, 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 the owner sends his beloved son, and they say, surely this will work out. <laughs> and so the, the tenants discuss among themselves and say, hey, if we kill the son, there's no heir and we get the land. Because the assumption probably was that the, the owner has not shown up yet. 
He must, like time probably hasn't been well, you know, good to him. He's probably older. He can't make the journey. He's maybe a little frail. And so he's sending servant after servant. Now he's sending his son as, as his representative. And he's not going to do anything. And so if we take out the son, what recourse does he have? Because obviously, by, by sending all of these servants, he's shown that he's weak. And so if we kill the son, then we get the vineyard. I mean, it makes sense if that's what you're thinking. And so he sends his son and they kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. And it's interesting because Jesus says, now hold on a second, what's the owner going to do when he finds out that they've killed his son? And Jesus answers the question because it's rhetorical. He says, the owner will come and destroy the tenants. He will come in a fury and then he will entrust other tenants the vineyard. Don't mistake his lack of showing up in person and sending servants as weakness. That's actually mercy because he's giving you more time to come to your senses and do what you said you'd do. They mistook it for weakness, which was a grievous error on their part. And so Jesus says, the owner will destroy them. And he even goes in, and he quotes Psalm 118 that says, the stone that the builders rejected. And he says, you are familiar with this. That stone has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, this is the gospel of paradox, of, of this human amazement at the unexpected work of God, that, that God's work is unexpected. It doesn't make sense to us, but it is all in our favor. That, that Jesus demands from us a reversal of human values and expectations, the whole first, last, last, first thing. And Jesus says the stone that's most critical has been rejected, but it's the thing that everything else stands on. And so as Jesus has been teaching the people and his disciples about what it means to follow him, self-denial and taking up your cross, and that the Son of God is going to die, Jesus again just reinforces. In fact, what he does in the parable, if you're listening, Jesus just summarizes what's going to happen in the next few weeks. He gives everyone a heads up. And, and so... And so here, at the end here, it says in verse 12, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Good job, guys. You guys are sharp. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like they're standing there like, wait a second. I, I think he's talking about you. No, he's talking about you. He wouldn't talk about us. It seems pretty clear. I think he's, I think he's taking a shot at us in a story form. <laughs> and so it says, so they left him and went away. Here's basically what happens. They were looking for an opportunity to arrest Jesus but they could not yet do that because they feared the people for they perceived rightly and were aware that the crowd also perceived that Jesus had told the parable against the religious leaders so that the crowd was more likely to take Jesus' side against them. So for the time being, they could take no action and they left Jesus in possession with the field, but only for right now until we re regroup and figure this out. Because I'm pretty sure they were all like, oh, sorry, I just forgot. I, I promised my wife I would take care of a thing in the other room, so I got to go home. Sorry, guys, I got to go. I mean, they just scattered and, and went away. And so here's the significance of the parable. 
those who God put in place to represent him and his plan and desire for the world and the long line of servants that God sent to keep those people on track to remind them what God was doing and that this whole thing belongs to God went unresponded to, even at points, denial, rejection, and violence. So Jesus, fi- or so God finally sent his son, Jesus, to reveal himself to his people, and they ended up rejecting and killing him. And the moral, the kind of the, the, the stinging part of the story is that God then removed those tenants and replaced them with new tenants. So basically what the story is saying, it's, it's the transition between Israel failing to carry out the mission that God gave them and God shifting through the sacrifice, the death and resurrection of Jesus to working through the church. Doesn't mean Israel's over. God has a place. But that God is going to remove those tenants after hundreds of years of mercy and grace and trying to get them on track. He's going to remove those tenants and place new ones who God calls to get the job done. What's the job? To be a blessing to the nations. To bring salvation to the nations. That's, what God, that's why God called Israel out, was so that Israel would be a blessing to all nations. That all nations would find Yahweh through Israel. And what did Israel do? They made their own little box that even made it difficult for other nations to find salvation. They just built themselves up and made a bunch of codes and a bunch of things that they were doing, and, 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 and they became very inward-focused so that they weren't a blessing to any nations. And so God said, all right, this is how it's going to work. I'm going to sacrifice my son because I know you won't listen to him. And he's going to make a way for salvation of all the nations. And the church is then going to have the mantle and the responsibility to bring salvation to the nations. And so so basically, Jesus did what Israel refused to do, brought salvation to the nations. And, And so I think there's a significance for us here. Because the end of the parable leaves this kind of moment of, okay, there's new tenants. And guess what? We're the new tenants. So the question is, are we like Israel and her leaders? Or have we drilled down into the mission that God has given us in bringing salvation to the nations? Or like Israel, do we actually make it difficult for other people to enter into a relationship with Jesus? Do we make up a bunch of codes that people have to figure out and maybe some morality that people have to achieve before we can let them in? See, there's a process when tenants live too long in a place and forget about the owner. It's a process of becoming comfortable and complacent, turning to rebellious, and finally to rejection. And at that point, eviction is in view. You see, I, I think that as I have done my own evaluation and looking at my life, looking at what I do and don't do, and looking at the church, I don't think we're much different than Israel. We've had some good moments, we've had some bad moments, but it feels a lot like the moment that Jesus was talking to Israel and the leaders of Israel and saying, look, you, you have missed the point. You've forgotten that I'm the one who this is all about. I'm the owner of everything. And I have asked you to be on mission with me in bringing salvation to the nations. And what are you doing? You are building a really nice kingdom of your own. You're even making it hard. 
for people to step over this really high bar that you're setting. Do we do that in the church? Do I do that as a person? You see, Jesus came the first time as a servant, sent to give his life. But the second time Jesus comes, he's going to come as a king. And his life is not the life that is going to be lost on that occasion. And so between those things, my purpose, your purpose, is to bring salvation to the nations. What does that mean? It means bring salvation to my neighbors. The people that I see when I shop at a certain place. The people that I see at restaurants, dining outside. (laughs) But that's what we're supposed to be about. And that's what God was saying. This is what Jesus was saying. You failed, leaders of Israel. I think God has sent message after message to his church, but we have fallen into that same cycle of rebellion and rejection and and are much more, and here's the thing, rejection in rebellion is much more subtle than, you know what, I don't accept Jesus as my authority. I mean, that's one way to do it. But actually, I think, I think our rejection of Jesus' authority in this and, and, and reforming what Jesus wants from us is things like, you know, Jesus didn't really mean that for me. We live in a different time. What, what, I mean, what, is, what does it really look like to deny myself? I mean, it doesn't mean deny myself. It can't be what those words mean because it may, Jesus didn't really want, Jesus doesn't want really me to deny myself. I mean, look at how he lived. Never mind. Scratch that. Not look at how he lived. But, 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 but see, that's the slope that we slide down. Here's a question. Is there anyone in the last week that I talk to about Jesus' significance in my life that doesn't know Jesus? I can answer that question for you. Nope, let me ask you a question, and then if you answer, I'll answer. No, just kidding. (laughs) I didn't. You know why? Because it's hard for me because I'm a pastor, and a lot of people I, I am around are Christians already, so it's just really hard. So, like, when I stand face-to-face with Jesus, he'll be like, I, you know, you did a lot of things well. Okay, there's not, there's not a lot of faith sharing with unbelievers in your life, but I totally get it, Matt. It's hard. Like, I totally get it. It was difficult. Like, you'd, ha- you'd, have, you'd have to do hard things. And believe me, I'm all about the high life for you. So, I totally get it. Don't worry about that part of the whole seeking and saving the loss. I mean, I know I said seeking, which means work to get out and look. But I didn't mean that for you. When it comes down to that moment that I see Jesus face to face and there is an evaluation or if Jesus wanted to evaluate how I was doing today, I don't want to be evaluated. What about you? It's hard. But I'm not that much different than the religious leaders in Israel who were actively opposing Jesus. And this isn't to take away hope or or make, make anyone kind of say, oh, saying I'm terrible. No. I'm saying that we have a hard time following Jesus. And that this parable about the tenants in the vineyard, we have a lot more in common with the tenants than we want to admit. See, we tend to complain about immorality and our shrinking footprint of freedom, but we have become comfortable in our privilege and become dangerously like those religious leaders questioning Jesus. In a lot of ways, I think we we pretty regularly forget who owns the vineyard and what his primary activity is. 
It is bringing people from death to life, from eternal death to eternal life. And, and, I, and I think we've got, we've got to recognize that. I heard somebody the other day, and, and I thought this was really, really good, about where we're off in our particular approaches to Jesus, the, 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 the ways that we've, we've approached Jesus. Um, probably most of us here, many of us here, myself, grown up in the evangelical church. And one of the things about the evangelical church, the thing that we put on the highest pedestal when it comes to Jesus is information and knowledge and making sure we are, we know, we know the information, we know the knowledge, we know God's word, we know it, we know it, we know it. Information is the most important thing. That's what we place on that pedestal. In the Pentecostal church, those who follow Jesus in the Pentecostal church, the highest pedestal that they have is experience. It's I've got to have an experience with Jesus. And that is way up there. In the progressive church, those who follow Jesus there, it is about cause, action. It is about a cause. I, have to, I better have a cause. And if I'm not about the cause, that's the highest thing. And here's the problem, is that when we put something really high, it tends to cause us to ignore other things. And so... In my growing up, it's, it's that, hey, it's all about what you know. Forget about your experience. And it really is about having right theology, whether or not that theology makes it to life in action. Because we can be super comfortable. Because how many of us know that Jesus is about seeking and saving the lost? And how many of us do it? I'm a winner in the evangelical church. Not so much in the progressive church. But see, the problem with putting just action and cause at the high point is that you might have the wrong cause because you don't know the heart of Jesus which is displayed and revealed in his word, in information that we need from only him. And if you're in the Pentecostal church and it's all about experience, you're like the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's all, hey, let's build booths here. Let's just be here forever and experience this to the detriment of, of knowing what God would have you do in his word and going out and benefiting the rest. So we need to bring that together. We are Jesus followers when we know God's word and we experience Jesus Christ in our lives and we go out and act like him in public. So this morning, maybe some questions for us wrestle with and ask each other throughout the week is this. First is this, what, what are you doing in the vineyard? What are you doing right now? What are you doing in the vineyard? Are you producing fruit for the owner? And there's two things that you produce for the owner. Is that I become like Jesus, that's fruit. And I draw others to Jesus, that's fruit. Three, have, have you forgotten or reimagined who owns the vineyard? I think it's so easy for us to be like 50-50 with Jesus. Like, you know, I mean, we're, Jesus doesn't make any decisions about my life without my involvement. We're 50-50 owners. We're business partners. And so, like, Jesus, and because when things come into our lives often that we don't like, we're kind of like, how can Jesus allow this? Like, I need 52% of the business so I can stop these things from happening. Number four is this, have, have you rejected the messengers God has sent you? Because maybe those messengers have come from a place that you don't see as a legitimate source of correction or information. It's funny, I mentioned the, the evangelical church and the Pentecostal church and the progressive church. Chances are many of us in the evangelical realm, when we hear progressive church, we say, oh, no, that's not church. Because the progressives aren't believers. But what if someone who comes from a progressive practice comes to you and says some truth that Jesus wants you to know in your life? Do you reject that messenger because of where it came from? Because they've, they're, they're off on some things? And, and, and so the last question I would say is this. 
How would God evaluate me or you as a tenant today? How would he evaluate me? And as I said before, I don't want God to evaluate me today. But that's not really my choice, is it? And that's why the mission of Jesus is so critical. We don't know. And so we struggle, and there's difficulty, and there's pain, but here's what is most significant, is that Jesus is true to his word, and he does save, and he saves for eternity. And that's what we need to be about. Father, we come before you this morning, and God, I I thank you for how clear you are. And God, I thank you for how merciful and long-suffering you are, that you would send message after message after message and not stop to the point of ultimate sacrifice on your behalf to show me, to show us your mercy and your grace and your love. So God, today I pray that we would be a people who would seriously evaluate what you've called us to do. And that we would take that seriously. Because God, I don't want to be one of those tenants. I want to be a tenant who when I hear the moment, the word of your servant, God, I want to be a tenant who says, okay, have everything. And what else do you want me to do? So, Father, I pray for us this morning as we struggle with with all kinds of different things. God, that you would give us the confidence of eternal life and the urgency to bring others toward it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.